And good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 6. If you're new with us, we are working our way through the book of 2 Samuel here at Calvary Chapel on Sunday morning. And a couple of weeks ago, we started a message I've entitled, Unequally Yoked. And it really comes out of our study in 2 Samuel 6. If you remember, David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Uh, it had been in the uh, house of Abinadab in kirjath Jerem for about 70 years. And David knew that you couldn't really worship God properly without the Ark because it represented God's presence, his throne on the earth. And so when he conquered Jerusalem, made it the capital of the nation, the first thing he wanted to do was go get the ark. Well, as we've already studied, he didn't really seek the Lord. He didn't study what God had said in the scriptures. He goes and gets it and, and tries to transport it the way the Philistines did when they captured it, putting it on a cart, uh, connected to a couple oxen and so on. And we've looked at that, how that it didn't end well. Uh, that Uzzah, uh, reached out and touched the ark when the oxen hit some kind of a stone or a rut. And the cart shook. The ark looked like it was going to topple off into the dirt. Uzzah grabbed it to steady it, and God struck him dead. David couldn't understand why God would do something like that. After all, they were only trying to do something good for God. Okay, So David was uh, thoroughly disheartened and um, afraid of God. And uh, maybe that was the point. Sometimes we don't really have a reverential fear for the Lord as we should. We take things for granted. We kind of get too familiar with the Lord and don't hold him in high esteem, uh, remembering that he's holy. And uh, so David said, look, party's over. Uh, I'm going home. Just take the ark, put it in the house of the closest Levite. That happened to be Obed-Edom. David goes back to Jerusalem. The ark stays in the house of Obed-Edom for three months. During that time, God begins to bless mightily the house of Obed-Edom. Word comes back to David. David, God is blessing this guy's house because of the ark. David was encouraged to try again. This time he studied the scriptures, found out how to properly transport the ark. They go and get it, and it is not a parade. It's a solemn procession. Yeah, there was joy, but they were doing it now God's way. God was the focus, and we pick the story up in 2 Samuel 6, verse 12. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, who was also David's wife, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Why did McCall despise David when she looked through the window and saw him dancing and leaping and twirling with joy as he was worshiping God? Because I believe she was an unbeliever just as her father Saul had been. On the other hand, we know that David was a spirit-filled child of God. 
And guys, this brought a lot of conflict into their marriage, the conflict of being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Of course, you remember what Paul the Apostle said about this in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. He said, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And the context was marriage. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? Now, before we look at the implications of a Christian being unequally yoked or married to an unbeliever, let's talk briefly about marriage in general. And I've used this illustration before, so bear with me if you've heard it. But marriage is like a ship that a man and a woman enter into as they embark on a journey together, a lifelong journey that will include sunshine and storms, smooth sailing and rough seas. How can husbands and wives stay together when the storms come and the marital seas get rough? Well, the answer very simply is commitment. Commitment. It's commitment, not feelings, that will bind you together and allow you to weather the storms of marriage. And those just take many different forms. Any difficulties that life brings your way, it's the commitment, not feelings, that will give you the strength to weather the storms. And yet, guys, I don't have to tell you this, you know this. Feelings have become the basis for almost everything in our culture today. And marriage is the main arena where this is played out. I hear things from couples like, you know, I don't feel love for him anymore. Uh, I think it's time to find someone new. Or, you know, she doesn't treat me like a wife anymore. I feel our marriage is over. What we as Christians need to remind ourselves of is that love, God's love is the basis for a strong marriage, but God's love is not a feeling. If you study God's love, agape, in the New Testament, it's always connected to a commitment. I'm not saying there's, I'm not saying there's no feelings that come with it. I'm just saying that feelings are not the core issue with agape love, God's love, which is the only love a marriage should be built on. And of course, unbelievers don't have agape love. They have human love. They have self-love but they don't have divine agape love. Romans 5 verse 5 tells us that kind of love, God's love, is poured into us when we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, just because it's in us doesn't mean we have to use it. We can still be selfish. We can still, you know, let self-love motivate us in the things we do. It's just that we have access to God's love. His is a completely selfless love. The Bible says that God's love is not feelings-based. Agape love, the Bible says, is a commitment, not a feeling. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? didn't say God felt something for the world. I'm sure he did. But the love that was being expressed by God was a commitment. He gave the most precious thing he had, his only begotten son, that we might have eternal life. He committed himself to us. We have to understand that. Love is not a feeling, although, again, I'm not saying feelings don't accompany true love. But if we're talking about God's love, God's love is a commitment. You see, our feelings-oriented love, well, we know that feelings ebb and flow. They come and go based on the various outward circumstances or influences or pressures that we are facing at any given time. I mean, sometimes in, mar in marriage, you all know that those of you who have been married for a while know sometimes uh, you know, the passion is flowing in your relationship with your spouse, and you feel like you're still on your honeymoon. But then there are other times your relationship feels kind of cold and formal. 
like partners in a business arrangement rather than two people in love. Now, when your passion for one another cools, that is not the time to go looking for another relationship. That is the time to fall back in the commitment you made to each other when you first stood before God, family, and friends, and you pledged to love each other, which means to stay committed to each other, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, for the rest of your lives, even when you don't feel like it. Allow me to use this to segue into Acts 27, which technically has nothing to do with marriage. And yet the lessons we can glean have everything to do with marriage. Let me give you the background. After being falsely accused by the Jews of being a rabble-rouser and jumping through legal hoops in Caesarea for a couple of years, Paul was finally sailing to Rome to plead his case before Caesar. On the way, they encountered a horrendous storm, a violent nor'easter called Eurachlodon. And uh, it threatened the lives of the 275 soldiers, sailors, and prisoners that were on board this ship with Paul. Well, one night after they had been tempest-tossed in the grip of this storm for about two weeks, an angel appeared to Paul and told him that the ship would be a total loss, but God would spare the lives of everyone on board. However, not long after Paul shared this news with the captain of the ship and the Roman centurion who was in charge of the prisoners, several of the ship's crew tried to jump ship. We read in Acts 27, starting with verse 30, Then the sailors tried to abandon the ship. They lowered the lifeboat as though they were going to put out anchors from the front of the ship. But Paul said to the commanding officer and the soldiers, You will all die unless the sailors stay aboard. So the soldiers cut the ropes to the lifeboat and let it drift away. I believe, guys, Paul's words, even though not directed at marriage, express the heart of God for us today with regard to our marriages. You see, just as these men found themselves in a situation where they had to stay committed to each other, okay? They had to work together in order to survive this storm. Well, the same is true in marriage. There are times in marriage, and maybe you're facing one of those times right now, you know, where the wind is howling, <laughs> the storm is raging, and you find yourself saying, man, I'm out of here, I'm jumping ship, I can't take this marriage one more day. But if you jump ship, know this. Not only will you be disobedient to God by breaking the marriage vow you made to Him, but you will miss the blessing of seeing Him work a miracle. You'll miss seeing him take what seems to be a hopeless situation and turn it into such a blessing that you will come to realize this, in fact, was the person all along that God put with you to be your spouse for the rest of your life. This, this person is the right one. Because I've, I've heard people say, well, you know, I married this guy when I was, don't think I was really walking with the Lord. And so, you know, I made a mistake. God knows I made a mistake. I'm just going to cut this bozo loose and find a real Christian guy. <laughs> Certainly God's okay with that, right, Pastor? No, sorry, he's not. Uh, and if you will hang in there, I believe God will eventually show you this was, in fact, the person he had chosen to be your spouse for life. You know, someone has written a book on marriage with the award-winning title, Good Marriages Take Time, Bad Marriages Take More Time. Listen again to the Apostle's warning. 
If you jump ship, no one will make it. If you jump ship, no one will make it. I want you to stop and think of your children if you have any. If you're contemplating divorce this morning, I want you to stop and think about the kids if you have any and what this will do to them if you go through with this. Let me share with you from my own life experience something that I, it may encourage you in some ways. Uh, my uh, mom and dad had five kids. I'm the oldest, and uh, my dad was a hard worker. He worked uh, two and three jobs to provide for my mom and uh, us kids. Of course, that took him away from the house a lot. And um, there was a time when I was about 10 where he was gone a lot working, and I think my mom just grew... Um, lonely at times and so she got involved with one of the neighbors they had a brief affair my dad found out about it and I remember as a 10 year old hearing them fighting uh, gut-wrenching to me as a kid hearing them fighting with each other none of us were saved uh, but hearing them fighting and uh, then uh, one day not long after that my mom took my youngest brother and she went to California to stay with her brothers for a while. And I really thought their marriage was over with. I really thought divorce was inevitable. Uh, as, again, as a kid, I, I just, it was eating me up. I was just terrified over what that would mean to our family and so on. And about five weeks later, she came back. They worked on their marriage and they got through that storm and they went on to have a very happy marriage until 25 or 6 years later my dad passed away. When I was in my 20s, one day I asked my mom, Mom, what happened with all of that? And she was very forthcoming. She said, you can ask me anything you want. And I asked her, well, what happened? Why did you come back? And she said, well, I'll be honest with you, I came back because of you kids. I thought about it and I thought, you know, I just can't go through with this and destroy our family. You know, guys, my mom made a mistake. We all make them, don't we? But in the end, she did the right thing. In the end, she didn't put her feelings above her family. In the end, she put her family above her feelings. And I'm grateful for that. I don't know how I would have turned out if they had gotten divorced. I know a lot of kids of divorced families are devastated. They're damaged for the rest of their lives, even themselves uh, living through two or three failed marriages. It's a terrible thing, and there are many studies done uh, on children of divorce, and uh, not that all of them have irreparable emotional damage. Many do. Many do. Look, I'm not saying it won't take hard work, sacrifice, and a lot of prayer for your marriage to weather the storm you're going through. But again, listen to me, with God, all things are possible. And that's not to say that divorce isn't sometimes necessary in the case of continued infidelity and or physical abuse. Sometimes it is necessary. I'm just saying that too many Christian couples follow the example of the world and rush into divorce when the storms hit and things get rough. Instead of honoring their commitment to one another, dying to self, and giving God time to work. Now, I know there are some who are saying to themselves right now, well, I haven't jumped ship. I've only lowered the lifeboat over the side. Uh, I'm going to give it, you know, two more weeks, three more months, one more year, then I'm out of here, right? Listen, if you keep an escape option open in your mind, I guarantee you will wind up using it. If you keep thinking about divorce, you will, listen, you will end up 
divorced. No marriage can survive a strong marital storm as long as you got one foot in the lifeboat and are contemplating jumping ship. Look, get rid of the lifeboat. <laughs> Cut the ropes. Stop planning your escape. Tell yourself divorce is not an option. Divorce is not an option. God can work a miracle. If you will trust him, obey his word, and commit yourself totally to his will for your life. Remember, Malachi 2, verse 16, God said, I hate divorce. He didn't say, I hate divorced people. He said, I hate divorce because it devastates people I love. And if God hates divorce, that means all the power of God is at your disposal for making your marriage work, for healing your marriage, even to do a miracle in your marriage. So don't jump ship. Now, being unequally yoked to an unbeliever has a certain amount of storms built into it, okay? Uh, which means it brings special challenges and difficulties into a marriage. Uh, how does a Christian get themselves into a situation where they are unequally yoked to an unbeliever? Well, we talked about this last time a little bit. Many didn't realize their future spouse was an unbeliever when they started seeing them. I've heard people say, he told me he was a Christian. Yeah, I didn't like a Christian when we were going out. Uh, she enjoyed going to church with me. We, were, we even read the Bible together every night when we were dating. And so based on that, a believer marries an unbeliever, not realizing they're an unbeliever. And it's not until after the wedding when their new spouse stops playing the part and reveals their true self. You know, but more times than not, I'm convinced a person finds themselves unequally yoked with an unbeliever when they get saved and their spouse doesn't. So what do you do? Well, to put it simply and succinctly, you obey what God has said on the subject. Again, drawing your attention to 1 Corinthians 7. We looked at this last time. Let me read it to you, the NLT. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 and 13, and then verse 16. Paul said, If a Christian man has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a Christian woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. Verse 16 don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? So hang in there. Your, your unsaved spouse is your main mission field. I mean, how do you know God has not allowed this whole thing for such a time as this? That you will be a missionary to your spouse, your unbelieving spouse. Now, look, I'm not going to paint a rosy picture here. I'll warn you, it might be very rough going for a long... That's why I encourage... Some people will hear me talk like this, and they'll go, okay, well, uh, I love this guy. I'm going to marry him because I trust God's going to save him. Well, you know what? <laughs> you want to go that route. You're disobeying God. That's a very rough road to travel. I mean, if you get saved after you were married, that's one thing. If you enter into marriage as a Christian, knowing the person's an unbeliever, that's another story. I'm not saying that God might not save your spouse, but, you know, that, that's, that's a very rough road to travel. I know a woman who is a, a Christian, and she became a Christian after she was married and now finds herself unequally yoked to an unbeliever. She is a very strong, spirit-filled believer who is committed to obeying God by staying with her husband, listen, 
even though it has been extremely difficult at times. I asked her if she had any advice for other women who find themselves in a similar situation. I suppose it could apply to men. No doubt it could. Uh, but I asked her if she had any advice for other women who are married to unbelievers. She said, and I'm quoting her, I tell them to pray constantly and to fast periodically as they are locked in a spiritual battle for the soul of their spouse. That's very important. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the forces of wickedness in the spirit realm. Uh, you think that you're married to this person and they're the enemy because they're so abusive at times or they're so difficult to deal with. They are not the enemy. They are being used by the enemy, no doubt, to bring a lot of heartache and difficulty into your life, but they are not the enemy. They have been taken captive by the devil to do his will, Paul tells us, and we are to love them into the kingdom, but don't fool yourself. This is a spiritual battle, and you need, you absolutely need to pray constantly and even fast periodically that this person might be saved. She said, when you pray, I tell them, declare the promises of God to remind yourself that he is with you and has promised his strength and power to you for you to hang in there and not give up. Guys, this is a supernatural battle, and there's no way you're going to have victory in your own strength. No way. You are embarking, on, it's again, a spiritual fight with the enemy who wants to keep this person from Jesus, and therefore you need to remind yourself every single day that God is with you. He has promised to, stay, to be with you, to give you the strength you need for all the work he's called you to do. And this is definitely a work of God to see your spouse saved. She said, I tell them to keep declaring the promises of God, uh, that they would be reminded that he is with them. They're not going through this alone. And that he has promised to give them all the strength and power they need to accomplish the work he is calling them to do. She went on to tell me that God often wakes her up in the middle of the night. And she will gently lay her hands on her husband, praying over him, claiming God's promises over him and rebuking the devil's influence in his life. She also said she has gotten a great deal of strength from her sisters in Christ who pray with her and for her in her battle with the enemy for the soul of her husband. She told me that the Lord one day gave her Psalm 18 to encourage her, which she reads often. Let me read to you some of it. The psalmist said, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple in heaven, and my cry came before him even to his ears. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy. And in her case, it would be the devil and his demons. From those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all of his judgments were set before me and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? 
It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, and sing praises to your name. You get a flavor of what's going on, right? We need to be encouraged in God's word that God is with you, that God will strengthen you. No enemy stands before you that God can't bring down, including your spouse, which is not, who is not your enemy, but you think they're your enemy at times. These are we, the promises we need to be reminding ourselves of, of continually. And finally, she said that she has gotten a lot of help and encouragement from one particular ministry. I'm sure there are many out there like this that is dedicated to building marriages, rebuilding marriages after divorce or after uh, infidelity, uh, including ministering to women married to unbelievers. And the ministry is Rejoice Marriage Ministries. Their web address is rejoiceministries.org. I checked out their website briefly and looked at their statement of faith. Everything looks good, but I'm not giving this ministry my personal endorsement because I haven't really thoroughly vetted it. I'll let you pray about it. Go to the website, check on the teachings and on the testimonies, and, um, and let me know if you find anything that's uh, wrong. Uh, it seems like a good, solid ministry. So, uh, you know, people need all the help they can get when they're involved in a situation like being unequally yoked to an unbeliever. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, Pastor, <laughs> that's all well and fine, but you don't know my husband. Okay, I mean, he's so bad... I'm afraid that he's beyond hope. I don't think he's ever going to get saved. And I've just accepted the fact that I'm going to be yoked to an unbeliever the rest of my life. I know you may feel that way, but let me end with a story that may encourage you. It's a true story. In fact, it's one of the most dramatic stories of redemption I have ever heard. It's the story of Mel Trotter. Let me read to you Mel's own testimony from his own mouth, looking back at his life before he got saved. He said, and I quote, From the time I began going to school, it was easy for me to make friends. This caught the eyes of some who began to groom me with political ambitions in mind. Soon, what had started as rather innocent affairs began to turn into social events, including the social drinking and all that goes with it. It wasn't long before the social drink was not reserved for special occasions, but became a morning, noon, and night experience. The virtues I had been noted for began to disappear, as steam does when it hits cold air. My ambitious political friends left first. They couldn't have faith in a young lush, even if they had been the ones who started me drinking in the first place. I went from one job to another and from one place to live to another, and each time, both the job and the apartment became less desirable. One day found me in Chicago living in a rat-infested cellar apartment in the worst section of the city. Why my wife and little child stayed with me, only God knows. For the pain and suffering I caused them cannot be described. I read somewhere else that uh, Mel's wife was a believer. And whether she got saved after they got married, I don't know. Or whether she married him, maybe she was backslidden before. Uh, you know, he got saved, I'm not sure, uh, but uh, this woman was incredible. He goes on to say, one day our little child was taken seriously ill. 
A faithful doctor came even though he knew there would be no payment for his call. After diagnosing the case, he reached into his own pocket, took out some money and thrust it into my hands, shouting, Mel, run, don't walk, run to the drugstore two blocks away from here. Here's the prescription. Come right back. It might even now be too late, so hurry. I climbed the stairs and was out on to the pavement. I looked to the left, and sure enough, I saw the drugstore about two blocks away, but then I looked to the right and saw the saloon was only a half a block away. A sudden desire came over me, one that drove all thought of my sick child out of my head. Even the fact that the money in my hand did not belong to me was erased as I blindly rushed to the bar and shouted, Let's all drink, it's on me. Soon the doctor's money was gone, and then some other fool threw his money on the bar, and we continued on and on through the day and into the night. When it was time to close, I was so far gone that the saloon keeper just threw me into, a, into the back room to sleep it off. When he came back the next day, I was still there, and it wasn't until the night began to approach that I came enough to my senses to decide to go home. When I arrived back, I slowly descended the rickety stairs. I saw that someone was talking very quietly to my wife, and they were crying. I still did not know why and was still too far gone to have understood. There had been no furniture in the apartment before, but now there was a little wooden box on a stand. I wondered what it could be. I went over and looked into the box, and I saw that it was the body of my little child, but looking very different. Someone had put on her clean clothes, new clothes, and somehow there was even a pair of brand new little shoes on her feet. Still, I didn't get the message. As I stood there, that urge came over me. I craved another drink, what I wouldn't do for another drink. As the urge overwhelmed me, I hurriedly slipped the new shoes from the cold feet of my precious child, rammed them into my pocket, and as yet I had not attracted the attention of my wife and the woman with her, I stole out of the apartment and sold those little shoes for a few pennies and bought another drink. I had gone down so low, I've often said I had to reach up to touch bottom. With all of this, I was not awakened to reality until one day after some debauchery, I decided to end it all. With me gone, I reasoned, the world would be, a, would be a lot better off, especially my wife. With this in mind, I headed for Lake Michigan to drown myself. It had gotten dark and cold, and as I wove down the street that would lead me to the lake, I was suddenly given a push by someone who said, Why don't you go in here, bud? It's nice and warm. As I went through the open door, someone set me in a chair. It all happened so quickly that I took, it took my muddled brain a little while to realize that I was in a room filled with men, and a man was speaking. He was talking as if he knew all about me, as he said, Perhaps you have come in here tonight, and you hadn't even planned it. In fact, you decided you were going to, to end it all, for you feel that no one understands you, no one cares, and there is no hope. My friend, I'm here to tell you that there is someone who understands you. There is someone who cares for you. And I can tell you that there is hope for you. You will find all of your answers when you come to Jesus Christ and receive him as your personal savior. He not only wants to save you from your mess, but wants to go with you the rest of your life to keep you from getting into any more trouble. The speaker was Harry Monroe and the place was Pacific Garden Mission. We have supported Pacific Garden Mission for close to 30 years. I became a different person that night. God saved me and made me a new man. My wife 
Well, she got a new husband, uh, one with sin and stain washed away, and I found a brand new tomorrow. The article concludes, Mel Trotter went on to become a preacher of the same message that saved his soul and changed his life, the message that Jesus Christ alone saves. He saw many hundreds, if not thousands, come to put their trust in the only one who was the remedy for broken hearts and broken homes, broken by sin, end quote. And you can check out Mel Trotter Ministries. He's with the Lord now, but you can check out his ministry at meltrotter.org. Let me end by saying this. No one is beyond the power of God to save and make brand new. And let me tell you this. Sometimes God will save the worst of us to give hope to the rest of us that no one is irredeemable. No one is irredeemable. No one is so far gone, no one is so lost that God can't reach out and recover them, can't reach out and save them and give them a new life. What you need to do if you find yourself in a situation like this is believe God for a miracle in your marriage. Submit yourself to Him, listen, as a willing instrument for Him to use for His glory to bring about His will, which is always for the salvation of the lost. He or she is your main ministry. You are a missionary for Jesus in your marriage. Don't ever forget that. You are a missionary for Jesus Christ right there in your home. And you're not going to bring your husband, ladies, to Christ by badgering them, fighting with them, playing Holy Spirit and trying to twist their arm into the kingdom. Guys, the same way. You must be the person God has called you to be. And then love them with agape love and let God begin to work in their hearts. I remember the ministry of, or the testimony of Nancy Missler. Her and Chuck, Chuck is a famous Bible teacher. For many, many years, they had a very rough marriage. Very, they're both believers. But they just didn't get along, a lot of pride. And Nancy was always trying to change Chuck. You know, and she'd guilt him into things. You'll call yourself a Christian. Look at all your talking. You know, just... You know, just, it was just, you know, she was trying to play Holy Spirit, she said. Then one day, the Lord spoke to her heart and said, Nancy, I want you to be the wife I've called you to be. And let me do the work in Chuck that only I can do. Nancy gave herself completely to the Lord, who began pouring his agape love into her for her husband. Chuck said, I don't know what's going on, but I knew something was different immediately. I opened the fridge, was stocked with all my favorite foods, not the kids' favorite foods. <laughs> Sat down at the dinner table. I didn't get the bent fork and the cracked plate. And he said, as time went on, I began to see that she was different. This caused me to begin to change. And eventually, God worked a miracle in our marriage. And the name of the book that uh, uh, is uh, The Way of Agape by Nancy Missler. You can check it out. An awesome book. Again, guys, with God, all things are possible. I don't care how bad it is right now for you, and I know these marital storms can get pretty rough. But God is saying, hang in there. Trust me. Draw your strength from me. Be a person I've called you to be to your spouse. Love them with my love, and let me work on them. May God give us the grace to do that, because he is in the business of restoring marriages, of healing marriages,
And uh, we trust he will in yours as well. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, for the lessons that you have put here for us in your word. We ask, Lord, that you will continue to work in our lives. Father, we pray that you will give us the grace to die to self, take up our cross, get on our faces before you constantly and say, Lord, work on me because I'm the only one you want to change. And I give you my spouse, Lord, that you might work on them in your terms. But give me the grace to be the husband or wife you've called me to be. Fill me with your agape love that I can love them, Lord, unconditionally, sacrificially. Give me the grace to remember I'm in a war. And my spouse is not my enemy. It's the devil who wants to kill this person for eternity. God, give me grace to see it that way and, and not to give up because my spouse's eternity hangs in the balance. Lord, we just pray that you would give us all strength and fill this church with your agape love, that we would be a, a testimony to those in darkness. For there is a God in heaven who can do all things. He's a miracle-working God. And if we will submit ourselves to him as instruments, he will do things in and through our lives that go so far beyond our abilities. The world will take a look and say, no way, you did this. It had to be God. To which we can respond, amen. So God, give us grace. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.